This is Our American Stories, and today we're kicking off a brand new series on healthcare called What Happens When? A series that tells the stories of what happens when we all interact with the healthcare system. And it's led by our chief health editor, Jim Glassman. Here's Jim with the inaugural feature. listening to the theme music of the Clint Eastwood movie, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, a spaghetti western about finding a gold fortune. But the title could just as easily have been describing health care in the 21st century. The good? Patients are living longer and better than ever before. The bad? The system is so complicated that we don't have a clue how all the payments work. The ugly? Well, we'll leave that for later. Let's start off pleasantly. Today's What Happens When episode is What Happens When You're Pregnant. And it comes to us from our field correspondent, Alex Cortez. Take it away, Alex. June 2014. We find out my wife, Kate, is pregnant. Oh, my God. Look at that. Then we find out it's another girl. What? 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 I'm just, I don't know. I don't understand. Um, how this happened. <laughs> to be honest, I'm stoked. I feel like I got the girl thing down. Might as well keep going with it. Just go, man. Men don't really like change. In the ensuing months, my wife and I have spirited discussions, fights, about what to name her. Have you started thinking of names yet? Oh, yeah. I've come up with a bunch of ideas. Really? Me too. This happened the last time, too. And both times, it was my fault. Yep. You see, I got this weird thing. With having the Spanish last name, Cortez, I feel like you got to have a Spanish first name to match it. So my wife's ideas like William... It just seems so wrong. You know, she's British, so I understand where she's coming from, but she also decided to marry someone with the Spanish last name. I didn't make her do that. But here we are, and she thinks my name ideas are just as wrong. Okay, fine. What do you have? All right, look. I know it's a little out there, but... (laughs) Magellan. Oh, my God. Our, Our child will be beaten to death in the schoolyard. Yes, Magellan. The Spanish dude who was the first to sail around the world. Pretty sweet, huh? Sweeta! Or Mercedes. Why do you hate our child? She thinks it's a car. I told her no, that's Mercedes. You're just saying that because I said no to your name. I'm really, really not. And now you see the basis of our fights. You might be thinking right now, your own first name is Alex, doofus. That's not very Spanish. And I agree, my parents did me a real disservice. Anyways, this has really been one long rant and certainly a detour from our topic today. 
our topic, Penelope's birth. That's my daughter's name that we settled on. Yes, I know it's Greek, but Google also says it's Spanish and a beautiful name. And we had a beautiful girl to match it. She arrived on March 22nd, 2015. Yeah, 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 it was great, yeah. But three months later, the real story begins. There arrives the bill. And yeah, I know it's coming, but boom, there it is. And there is a $710 charge for use of the nursery. And boom, a second one, $710 for the nursery. That's a lot of nursery. It's like a mortgage payment or a rent payment, except that we didn't rent the whole nursery for a whole month. It was like a few hours and boom, $1,420 total. Frankly, I expected any nursery cost to be a part of the general cost we'd be charged for, for our time in the hospital. Because that's how the hospital acted, it was like. Now, I don't have any problem with them line-iteming my bill. Really, I like it, so I can see exactly what I'm being charged for. What I don't like is not being told that I'm going to be charged for something that's offered to me. What is this? Think about an example outside of the hospital. You're on an airplane. Can you fly this plane and land it? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. And they offer you a pillow. They don't say up front that there's a cost for it because they don't charge for it. But if they offer me an alcoholic drink, they let me know that price before they even get me that drink. Not after the drink, because then I think there's no charge. So when the hospital offers you, say, a pillow or a few hours taking your daughter into the nursery so you can catch up on sleep, which I thought was very nice of them at the time, and they certainly said it all nonchalantly like it's normal, and they don't mention that there's a charge, I don't think I'm going to be charged for it. Except that they did charge me. A lot. And worst of all, more than I can even rationally explain. How can a few hours of babysitting cost $1,420? Was Cher babysitting my daughter in the nursery? Singing her to sleep? I'd pay hundreds of dollars for that, but I'd also want to be there for it. And I wasn't. So I don't think it was Cher. It was just a nurse. And I don't mean just a nurse. Nurses who've helped my wife with her pregnancies are some of the best souls I've ever met. But I don't think they get paid hundreds of dollars an hour to watch my daughter either. That money's going somewhere else. Definitely not in their pockets. I wonder if they know they're getting stabbed. So I set myself on an investigation. A very trying investigation. A very 21st century investigation. It only involved picking up the telephone. And so it begins. October 26th, 2016, investigation opened. Please listen carefully as our menu has changed. Thank you for calling back Memorial Hospital. After the break, we continue with Alex's investigation into Baptist Memorial Hospital, charging him two $710 charges for the use of the nursery, without them mentioning that there's an additional cost for the use of that nursery, a service that Alex and his wife didn't ask for, Baptist approached them and offered it and acted like there was just no cost. More after these messages, it's only going to get more interesting, folks. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we're back with the inaugural episode of our What Happens When series, a series that tells the stories of what happens when we all interact with the healthcare system, and that we love, and we love to hear your stories. Give us a call at 844-627-8255 and record your story there, and leave us your information, and we can help you record it. My goodness, I know you have stories. I'll do one next week about my wife being turned down again and again by an insurance company or on her Botox. I'm just going to bring her in, frankly, and what's starting to happen to her and what's happening to her headaches. And I know we've talked about it a little on the air. And let's face it, this is the most personal issue there is in America. It is the most important, and we're trying to make it understandable to you, break it down, break it apart, and with Jim's help, uh, we're going to be doing that regularly here on Our American Stories. And today's episode is What Happens When You're Pregnant. And our field correspondent, Alex Cortez, is bringing us his own personal story. When his daughter Penelope was born in 2015 at Baptist Memorial Hospital in the town where we broadcast, Oxford, Mississippi, a nurse offered to take her to the nursery for a while so Alex and his wife Kate could catch up on some sleep. That was the entirety of the conversation No additional cost was mentioned, and yet months later, they received a bill from Baptist that had two nursery charges on there, $710 each, and Alex, well, he's looking into it now. Why were there additional charges at all when none was mentioned, and why in the world would nursery charges cost $1,420? Alex wanted to discover how many hours this was for and what the hourly rate was and why he had to pay it. Let's now return to his investigation. And so it begins. October 26th, 2016, investigation opened. Please listen carefully as our menu has changed. Thank you for calling Baptist Memorial Hospital North Mississippi Financial Office. To speak with a financial counselor, please press 1. Here's the first person I'll speak to. We're bleeping people's names throughout this investigation to protect their privacy. Hi, I just wanted to call about a past bill and, and ask about a couple of the charges on it. Oh, okay. Do you know what these, uh, it says HC nursery newborn level and, charges are for? And who, who are you? I'm, I'm her dad. Okay, and... She's going to need to call and have you added to the account because they don't have your name on here. And so we can't discuss any uh, anything about her account. You know, she, she's only uh, she's only a year old. Oh, Lord, you know what? I thought this said 19 years. I am so sorry. It's okay. <laughs> okay. Now, you want to know about what now? Um, there's some charges on here for nursery newborn level 1RC. Um you know, it's seven hundred ten dollars. I just wanted to see what what that was. Okay, I see it. Hold on for a second. Let me get someone who can answer these questions for you. Hold okay, on for a minute. Acid reflux disease affects approximately thirty percent of the American population, causing daily heartburn. Okay, sir. 
Yes. That's the charge for the nursery. She was here for two days. Okay. Um, you know, it says, it says quantity of one. Do you know how many hours that is? No, sir. I have no idea how many hours. Okay. We're just thinking about having another kid. I just want to see if there's anything I can improve to lower our costs next time. And um, just... Let me let you talk to Miss. She may be able to help you. Hold on for a second. Okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. The second person I'll speak to. This is how I help you. My name is Alex. I had a child at Baptist and, and wanted to go over a couple of the items on my bill. Okay, now uh, the one that you would need to speak with about uh, OB and maternity, she's already gone for the day. But if you call back on tomorrow after 8 and just uh, ask for. Okay. Mm-hmm. We'll call this woman I'm supposed to ask for the mystery woman. And you're about to see why. It's now day two, October 27th, and I am asking for that mystery woman. Cash office, they're going to help you? The third person I'll speak to. Hi, I'm looking for... Who? Um, I, I don't know. I was talking to Billing yesterday, and they recommended they call... Well, I don't know what... In the Billing department. Will you give me a break one time? Well, the only... I know is in admissions. Okay, it's a, um, I guess I'll try her then. Okay. For excellence in meetings. You have been forwarded to a voicemail system. Man, voicemail. Your session cannot be continued at this time. Your call is being transferred. Please wait on the line. The fourth person I'll speak to. Baptist Memorial Hospital. Can I help you? Yes, I'm looking for a lady named... Um, what do you know, know? I was talking to Billing yesterday, and they told me to call back to talk about a question I had with um, But I just talked with Billing, and they said that there isn't someone named who works there, so I'm, I'm not sure what department is in. Okay. Refill prescriptions. Person number four didn't know the mystery woman, so she transferred me back to the financial office. I'm starting the process all over again. Thank you for calling back to Memorial Hospital. The fifth person I'll speak to. This is How can I help you? Hi, I'm looking for I called yesterday and someone recommended that I touch base with her. And then someone else in billing just tried transferring me to her. But um, the, the number uh, didn't work for her. Okay, do you know her last name? I don't. Okay. The only that I'm familiar with is up here at the front. So hold, let me see if I can find her number. Okay, hold on one okay, moment. thank you. Been gone bad. I help you. I finally found the mystery woman, the sixth person I'll speak to. Hi, um, I spoke with Billing yesterday, and I had a question, and they recommended that I speak with you. Okay, I'm actually tied up right this minute. Can I get a name and number and I can try to call you back? Oh, sure. Uh, I finally found this mystery woman and she can't talk to me. Okay, Alex? Yes. Okay, and what's this concerning? Um, a bill um, for my daughter, Penelope. Okay, it's just concerning a bill. Yeah, I just had a question about some of the itemized okay, things. Okay, we wouldn't, you wouldn't need to talk to me about that. You wouldn't need to talk to our billing department. Well, they, they recommended that I speak with, with you when I, about one of these questions. Uh, what, what's the question? 
Um, so there were some charges for the nursery. Um, okay. You know, so it was like $710 for a quantity of one, and then it repeated okay, on there, too, and I wanted to see how many hours that was for Yeah, that. I would not be able to help you with that part. I'm sorry. All right! Okay. Uh, let me give you a uh, 800 number you can call. Okay. Is that for a Baptist? It is. Now, really, the only thing I could help you with is that if your wife, before your wife came in to have the baby, I, get, I sent out a letter showing, you know, the estimated charges and all for that. But I don't do anything with the nursery or anything like that. Oh, so we can see all of the estimated charges except for the nursery. That makes sense. Okay. But this this is our billing department. They should be able to help you with that. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. It's still day two, October 27th, after a few slices of microwave bacon, because I'm stuck in the office doing this investigation, I am calling that 1-800 number. Hang on. This will be the seventh person I speak to. Good afternoon, business office. This is How can I help you? She doesn't sound like she wants to help me. I called the Four Seasons Hotel, and this is what someone who wants to help me sounds like. Good afternoon, room reservations. This is Mariana. How may I assist you? Notice the difference? Anyways, back to my conversation with person number seven. How can I help you? After the break, we'll hear that conversation with person number seven. And by the way, we're all laughing because we have all been there. And this is not a laugh of like, oh, isn't this funny? Like, oh, isn't this torture laughter? And can you believe this? Well... Of course you can. After the break, we'll continue with the final portion of Alex's investigation, and we'd love to hear your What Happens When stories. Give us a call at 844-627-8255 and record your story there, or leave us your information and we'll help you record it. Once again, that's 844-627-8255. Or write to us on our website at ouramericannetwork.com. This is Our American Stories. What happens when we're digging into healthcare and we're making it fun, folks. But in the end, over this coming year, we're going to break it down because this is eating up our life savings. This is eating up our incomes. And we want to figure out why things cost what they cost and why things are the way they are in our healthcare system. More after these messages. Our American Stories, and we're back with the inaugural episode of our What Happens When series. And we're digging into the healthcare system for you folks. And again, we want to hear your stories. Now let's continue with Alex's quest. Here he is talking, well, he's talking to the seventh different person at Baptist, trying to get an answer. This person comes to him from Baptist 1-800 number after no one who actually worked at the local hospital could help him. How can I help you? Hi, I had a question about uh, one of my bills. Okay, what is your account number? I'm not finding anything with it. What about your social? 
Not signing anything with your social either. All right, can we look it up by the, the patient's name? Yes. All right, so it's Penelope Rose Cortez, C-O-R-T-E-S. No, sir. Is this Baptist? Yes. Okay, I mean, you should, I hope, I'd hope my info was on file. Okay, let me place you on hold just a second. Okay. Okay, sir? Yes. I'm not pulling it up. You would have to contact the main business office. At least I'll now be speaking with the main business office, the head honchos. They should be able to answer my simple question, right? 5433. Three. All right, thank you. Thank you. At least we left that off on a pleasant note, thanking each other for the mutually enjoyable experience. It's still day two, October 27th, and we should be coming to an end of this investigation. We finally get to talk to the big dogs. Baptist Business Office. The eighth person I'll speak to. Hi, I'm, I have a question about one of my bills. One moment. What's the account number? It is... Did, is that a bill from Baptist? Yes. That's not a Baptist account number. What? I sure hope it is. These thousands I've been paying better be going to the right person. Uh, that's what's listed on the statement I got here. What's the full name of the facility? Uh, Memorial Hospital, North Mississippi. Okay, we don't service that area. You don't? You're the main business office. Shouldn't you be servicing all areas? Okay. Yeah, I was just passing along to you, so I'm not sure who I should call next. Um, you did call the hospital that she was treated at? Yep. And what did they say? You know, so I was asking, there's a couple charges on here for the nursery, like $710 for... But did they have your uh, your account? Oh, Were yeah. They-, they they just they couldn't answer my questions about this. Oh, and, I see. I see. Yeah, and they said, you know, call the 1-800 number. They know. And then the 1-800 oh, number sent me to you. I've never heard of that before. Now, they pulled up your account. They did treat your child. They're supposed to explain the bill. Yeah, they couldn't. Oh. Uh, you probably need to call back and ask for a supervisor or a manager. Okay, I'll do that. Okay. All right, thank you. It's still day two. How long day two? October 27th, in case you needed a reminder. I didn't reach the end of the investigation with the main business office as I was hoping, but I do have a new lead. The very first place I spoke with, the hospital. Cash office, can I help you? This is the third person I spoke to. Given I'm speaking to her a second time, should I consider this person number nine? Nah. I, I think we spoke a little bit ago. So It might have been you or someone else transferred me to the 1-800 number. Um, and then they transferred me to the business office. But then the business office said they couldn't help me. Um, so they recommended that I see if there's some kind of supervisor or manager I can talk to. They're all in meetings in Memphis today. <laughs> Naturally. By the way, Memphis is the same city where the business office is. The business office, which said the Oxford Hospital is too far away from the service. And yet not too far away for them to drive to and from for a meeting on the same day. It's only an hour and 15 minutes away. It's still day two, October 27th. I've made a lot of phone calls in my investigation, but it's come to an abrupt halt. They're making me call back tomorrow. Except that I can't call back tomorrow. I'm going to my first wedding in New Orleans. 
It's now October 31st, day three of my investigation. I am back from New Orleans, and I call the hospital supervisor. Cash office, can I help you? This is the third person I spoke with. Now for the third time, albeit briefly. Hi, I'm looking for... Oh, one mama. Lower dose treatment. This is... How may I help you? The ninth person I'll speak to. Hi, my name is Alice Cortez. Um, I've spoken with a couple of people on your team. Um, I called the financial office. They sent me to 1-800 number. I completely forgot about the mystery woman at the hospital. This was before the 1-800 number. It seems so long ago, and yet only a few days. Uh, they then sent me to the business office, and then they recommended that I call the hospital back to speak with a supervisor, and they recommended you. Um, so just wanted to see if you can help me with a couple of questions. Okay, how can I help you? She didn't seem too thrilled to help me either. It means I can't stand you being here! And just by the way, you know, I wish Chick-fil-A handled pregnancies. They'd absolutely crush it and top it off with it's my pleasures and actually mean it all over the place. Um, uh, questions about our, our, our bill and some of the charges that we have on it? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a couple of nursery charges here. Um, one for $710 and then another one for 710 And I, I just wanted to see how many hours that was billing for. For the... Um Okay, for the nurse, the newborn. Yes. It looks like it was two hours. Okay, so two hours for. for, for hour. It looks like it was an hour each. Oh, an hour, an hour each. Yes, uh huh. For seven hundred ten dollars. Yes, uh huh. We've got our answer. Investigation over. All right, celebrations over. I continue to speak with person number nine to figure out why it costs $710 to babysit an infant for an hour. Oh, man. I've, I think I can usually get babysitters for $15. You know why it was that much? That That's just a normal charge. Okay. I mean, that was for an hour, that, and that's, that's the standard charge. Okay. The, the other thing that I found a little frustrating, when they asked me um, whether we want to take our daughter to the nursery, they didn't say that there was a cost with it. So I just said yes, but... Um, you know, they didn't tell me I'd be charged, you know, any amount of money, let alone seven hundred ten dollars. Yeah, well, on the floor, like in the clinical area, they're not—they don't know anything about charges. Okay, but shouldn't I know as a patient what I'm going to be paying before I, you know, make a financial transaction? Well, I mean, like uh, for the baby, uh, for maternity or whatever. Normally, someone contacts you before, you know, before the baby is born, and um, you know, work with you on the on the payment option. Okay, but no one, you know, before or after the birth told me it would be $710 to watch our daughter for an hour. Okay. Well, um, you know, it's not a matter of watching. I mean, they have things that they do when they have them in, you know, in the nursery. I know, but do you understand from my perspective, I would have said, you know, no, I'll watch my daughter for an hour. I don't, you know, I'm not going to, you know, pay $710 for it. Well, I mean, I don't know what I'll have included in there. Wow. Just wow. I'm over this investigation. Back to you. I'm Alex Cortez. That's the charge. I love that. That's the charge. Alex, great job. Sorry to do that to you. But actually, what's interesting here is most people don't have the time. And in fact, it was Alex's job. And that's the only reason he had the time to chase this one down. And when we come back, we'll be joined by our chief health editor, Jim Glassman, who's leading our What 
Happens When series to talk about this story and what it means and what we should all take away from it. This is Our American Stories, and this stuff's important, folks. Again, we like having some fun here, and we're always going to have fun here. But in the end, we want to do some learning, and we want to be, in the end, being advocates for you and figuring out what the heck's going on. Because I know that's how we're thinking more and more as Americans as it relates to this important subject, our health, the health of ourselves, the health of our families. Again, this is Our American Stories. Jim Glassman up after the break. American Stories, and we're joined now by our chief health editor, Jim Glassman. And Jim, thanks so much for joining us. Well, it's a great pleasure. Hey, Jim, we heard what we heard. And uh, before we dig into a more general discussion, uh, talk about the idea that folks like Alex who are paying high deductibles are now finding out things about their bills that they might not have found out before because so often the bills come in, someone else is paying for them. And so we really don't scrutinize that bill. Talk about what was happening in Alex's case. And in the end, talk about why that might not be such a bad thing long-term for figuring out how to find out where costs are and how we can bring them down in our health care system. Right. So the big problem with the health care system is that we removed the people who provide health care, like hospitals and doctors, from consumers. So, you know, if, you, if you're going to Walmart or someplace to buy a sweater, uh, you know what the price is. They tell you what the price is. It's right out there. And if you think it's too high, you go somewhere else. Uh, or, you know, there may be five or six possible places to go. With health care, the consumer really doesn't get involved in making these decisions. However, because costs have gone up so much, insurers are now requiring in many of their policies, uh, the actual consumers to pay a chunk of it, either through a deductible or through a copay. So now we're finally being faced with what some of these costs are, and we can yell and scream about them. We can try to find out what they are. And in some cases, although not enough, we can go somewhere else. So it's becoming, I think healthcare is becoming more and more, uh, more like a normal consumer item. You know, we don't have insurance to pay for uh, our groceries. We don't have insurance to pay for very many things in life. But insurance generally is covering a vast majority of the of the costs in healthcare, and that's in one way it's great, of course, but in another way it's a big problem. And well, by the way, we're talking about hospitals, and they're not exactly run like hotel chains, Jim. And why do you why do you think that is? I mean, we we had that little analogy there of how the Ritz-Carlton answers or how any good hotel answers us and answers our claims about a bill or a question. It's almost instantaneous that they're pulling up a folio, they're explaining things, and they always tell you what the peanuts at the snack bar cost, always. 
Right. Uh, so, first of all, the majority of hospitals are nonprofits. Uh, they're not really used to dealing with customers in the way that a very competitive hotel chain or retailer would. So that's one problem. Um, another problem is that, you know, the truth is things have gotten a lot more complicated. Uh, so, you know, there are they're, they're insurance companies, there's uh, Medicare, there's Medicaid. It's not necessarily all that easy for them, to tell you the truth. And I would say the third issue, which is a, which is a big one, is a lack of competition. So I'm not completely familiar with Oxford, Mississippi, but when I looked it up online, looked up, you know, how many hospitals there are in Oxford or northern Mississippi, I mean, there are very, very few. I mean, yep. Baptist really dominates northern Mississippi. So, so it's not a case where because you, know, you had a bad experience there or a neighbor has had a bad experience, you can go somewhere else you know, as you would with a restaurant. So I think it's really a combination of those things that makes it so difficult to, to deal with hospitals. And then I would also say that remarkably enough, uh, the healthcare industry has been very slow to pick up on technology. And so they're just doing it now. A lot of people are not familiar with the technology or they're just learning the technology. So that's another problem. And let's talk about price and costs. We, we, don't, we rarely know the price of anything. We find out the costs later. Let's talk about the average cost of a pregnancy in the United States. And, Jim, compare it to other countries. Sure. Well, the, the International Federation of Health Plans uh, publishes every year some sample costs for the United States and for other countries. And it's, it's I mean, it, most people don't have no idea what it costs because the insurance company is paying for most of it or almost all of it. You know, a, an amazing statistic is that Americans pay out of pocket only $3 for every $100 in hospital costs that they incur. Now, that's going to start rising. There's no doubt about it. And as Alex said, you know, he's, he's got a high deductible policy. But a lot of people just don't know what it costs. So the average cost for a normal delivery in a hospital, including the doctor, but not including what happens before or what happens after the delivery, is $10,808 in the United States. So almost $11,000. Compare that to Australia, where it's a little over $5,000. Spain, it's less than $2,000. Switzerland, which is a rich country, it's $7,800. So, you know, we're on top, as we usually are, with all these hospital costs. But and that's a lot, $11,000. And a C-section is $16,000 in the United States and 10000 in Switzerland. So these are big numbers, uh, $78,000 for a heart bypass in the United States. And that's the average cost. You know, a lot of, uh, a lot of hospitals are a lot more than that. And, and Jim, you, you said earlier that 3% of the costs are paid out of pocket, but somebody's paying. So when these prices go up, we all pay with higher costs of insurance because we're all absolutely. paying for each other. Nothing's yeah, so, free. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so when we say out of pocket, that doesn't include what you're paying for your insurance. Right. Uh, it means, you know, what you're paying specifically for that procedure um, out of your pocket or with your credit card. So, yeah, sure, we're all paying for it, but because it's done through insurance, we don't see that particular or we rarely even look at 
the cost for that particular procedure. And Jim, isn't it uh, crazy? And, and that's, and that's isn't, it, problem. isn't it crazy that the thing that's most important in our lives, I mean, we have all this price pressure on flat screen TVs, on potato chips. I was going down a potato chip aisle the other day. I went, oh my goodness, look at the prices, the varieties. There's like a thousand different flavors. And there is the price. And even LASIK surgery, Jim, which is a, an important healthcare procedure. We have choices. We have prices. And what's happened with the prices in LASIK surgery over the last 15 or 20 years? Right. So they, they've declined. And so we're, where we have real operating consumer markets, Prices are under control. They either decline or they're, they're up a little bit. But where we don't have real consumer markets, and that's true in most of healthcare, care, uh, we're seeing prices go up by an average of about 4 or 5% a year. And th- this is in an environment where inflation is you know, maybe 2% a year. So prices are, are rising, and there are many reasons for it. I mean, you know, we should also understand that hospitals are delivering better services than they used to. Yep. Uh, drug companies are delivering better drugs than they used to. So we're not necessarily comparing apples and oranges, but there's no doubt that prices are going up. And it's because part of it is because these are not normal, competitive consumer markets. And Jim, what part of the dollar, the aggregate dollar, is spent on hospitals on the back end pharmaceutical industry, uh, doctors, where is that dollar spent? Could you break that down for us? Yeah, and so that's a great question because I think people don't understand that, you know, uh, there's been a lot of talk about high drug prices, and certainly specialty drugs are expensive. But it's, it's a shock for most people to learn that of the total dollar, healthcare dollar, only 10 cents is spent on pharmaceuticals. About 32 cents is spent on hospitals, and about 20 cents is spent on physicians, uh, professional services, and you know what's called outpatient. So the biggest chunk is hospitals by far. The second is outpatient, and then you know there are a lot of a lot of smaller costs, you know, dental costs and that sort of thing. But it's and it's a and the total is a really big number. Okay, so we now spend almost one fifth, you know, one 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 out of every five dollars that the United States produces is spent on healthcare. So it's like nineteen percent of our GDP goes to healthcare, and you know, it's hard to say whether that's. I mean, that it, there's no doubt. There's no doubt that that is a very high number compared to other countries. There's no rich country, no developed country that spends more than 11.5% of their GDP on health care. And we spend more than 18%. So it's a lot more. Now, you know, we get a lot for that, but we still don't get enough, in my opinion. Uh, for example, we still have a very uh, a lower life expectancy than most uh, rich countries. Um, We are, in many ways, uh, a less healthy country than most rich countries. Now, that's partly because of our behaviors. It's partly because of obesity, smoking, lack of exercise. But we're not delivering health care in an efficient way. No doubt about it. And by the way, in that breakdown, Jim, where it was 10 cents on the drugs, 32 cents on the hospitals, and 20 cents on the dollar on physicians, only one of those does the price go down over time. 
and that would be the drugs because of the generic uh, capability after a patent uh, expires on a drug. This is Lee Habib. I've been speaking with Jim Glassman, our health editor here on Our American Stories. What happens when? Tune in for the next one. We're going to be setting Alex out there again and hopefully a little less painful for him. This is Our American Stories, and thanks as always, Jim, for your work. More after these messages. our American stories and we tell stories about all walks of life here, all stages of life. And college is a growing part of that. A lot of us send kids off to college in hopes of educating and maturing them. And that's why every now and then we check in with folks who have a finger on the pulse of what's happening on our campuses. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear our remarkable hour with Professor Kerry Cronin of Boston College about encouraging students to do something crazy date in college, not hook up. It's been a tremendous success there. And well, if you're a parent and you've got a kid in another college, you've got something to learn from Professor Conan, especially if you've got daughters. Today, we're talking with Roger Kimball, who has done some of the finest writing on a few recent controversies at Yale University, like his latest piece in the Wall Street Journal, Yale's Inconsistent Name Dropping. And Roger happens to be the president of Encounter Books. They put out all kinds of superb work and superb publications and books. Roger, before we get into this naming issue, take us back a little to set the scene. What is Silliman College, and what happened there after Halloween back in 2015? Right, Lee. Uh, Well, uh, Silliman College is one of the 12 residential colleges uh, that were established in the early 1930s at Yale. And although the university is quite large, these individual colleges were meant to mimic the Oxford and Cambridge experience where students would have a, um, uh, a small group of people that they would live with, uh, study with, take meals with, and so on. And Silliman is, is one, of these, one of these colleges. Now, what happened back in 2015 is that the dean of Yale College, right before Halloween, sent around a, a college-wide email uh, expressing the hope that students would show discretion in their choice of Halloween costumes and not dress up in anything that would be uh, offensive to people. So I think one of the examples given was, um, you know, an Indian headdress, say, uh, all the kinds of things that Probably you and I, when we were kids, were just, you know, taken for granted normal kinds of stuff. No longer able to do that. And um, now the, 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 uh, uh, the colleges, uh, the, the, there's the, the head of the college used to be called the master. The, Yale has subsequently retired that word uh, because they, they feel that it has um, 
uh, or some students felt that it had uncomfortable racist overtones, which of course it doesn't. It has nothing to do with a master on a plantation, but everything to do with the uh, a master of arts, you know. But uh, we don't want to confuse Yale with those etymological uh, issues. But right. the, the, the wife of the master of, of Silliman College sent round a, a, a two- or three-page letter basically agreeing with the sentiment of the, of the dean's uh, cautionary tale about costumes, full of liberal hand-wringing and so on and so on. We have to be um, sensitive to other people and all that. But she ended, she ended her memo to the students of Silliman College by saying, well, I don't know whose job it is to police Halloween costumes, but one thing I know is that it's not my job. And it was this that uh, sent the tender, snowflake-like students at Silliman College into a tizzy of uh, self-induced victimhood. And they met with the master, the then master of Silliman College, the the husband of this lady, and um, fortunately was captured on uh, uh, on video, and that video went went viral, where you have students screaming obscenities at the at the uh, at, at this chap and telling him that they don't they don't um, they don't want him to uh, uh, you know abdicate this supposed responsibility of making sure that people um, don't wear offensive costumes, but rather they want him to create a safe space for them. And it was, it was really quite a remarkable video. And I wrote about that uh, incident um, back, when, back when it happened. It, by coincidence, I happened to be at a, uh, 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 an event uh, about free speech in academia. And, of course, uh, that is a, a, an endangered species on many college campuses, especially at Yale. And in the aftermath of this um, extraordinary uh, event. Um, uh, the, the, some students marched to the president's house at midnight with, with a list of demands and so on. And at that point, uh, uh, it was at that point that they decided to drop the, 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 the title master, uh, and several other things were, were on the agenda. The president, uh, Peter Salovey, um, uh, you know, gave $50 million to various, um, minority uh, student groups and professorships. Uh, he uh, he um, considered changing the name of John uh, of Calhoun College, named for John C. Calhoun, a great American statesman who was a, a, uh, a member of the House, a senator, secretary of war, secretary of state, vice president, a, one of the great orators of his age, uh, uh, and, you know, a, a, an amazing person. But he also, um, uh, not only did he own slaves, like uh, almost everyone back then, but he also um, wrote about it, and he said uh, he, he made uh, the argument that slavery was not just a necessary evil, but also, he said, a positive good. And he had reasons for this, which you can disagree with. But, um, uh, you know, he was considered a uh, towering figure uh, sufficient in 1933, I think is when the uh, Calhoun College was named, that they that Yale decided to name this college for him. Now, uh, uh, at that time, uh, when when in the aftermath of the um, 
uh, the student protests and dropping the name Master and so on, they considered changing the name of Calhoun and they decided not to. But they kept the the possibility of changing the name open uh, for future for for future consideration. And uh, and that's what the, sets us up for the rest of this story, Roger. Which we're going to catch on the other end of this break. This is Lee Habib. This is our American stories. Roger Kimball on Yale University. And by the way, why should you care about Yale if your kid doesn't go there? Because what happens in Yale doesn't stay in Yale. What happens at Harvard doesn't stay there. Those professors get edged up, educated up, and they migrate to colleges around this entire country. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Roger Kimball on Yale controversies, Yale University. And Roger, before you tell this story, just briefly, I tried to describe why folks listening, and this is not a political audience for the most part, this is folks listening to Frank Sinatra segments, segments about health and why a drug costs what it costs, and and it's it's a very eclectic show. So when we talk about Yale University, why does it matter? Why is someone listening and has a kid at Penn State or as a kid who's in the third grade, why should those parents care listening to these stories? Well, Lee, I think you uh, suggested the answer to that, is that, that um, institutions like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, the Ivies, the, the top-tier schools, they set the agenda. So what happens at a place like Yale in terms of its um, uh, the, the, the moral and social and political climate that doesn't stay at Yale. That is replicated across the country. And um, many uh, secondary and tertiary institutions, uh, they can't be Yale, but they can act like Yale. And they think that by um, incorporating the dictum, dictums of political correctness, as Yale has done, that, that they will somehow, uh, some of that shine will rub off on them. So it's, it's really quite extraordinary. What, what we've seen is that our um, institutions of higher education, uh, you know, to a very great extent, they have abandoned that uh, ambition to acquaint students with, as Matthew Arnold once put it, the best that has been thought instead, and, 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 and said, and instead what they're doing is they are um, attempting to be uh, social justice warriors. They're all about virtue signaling. They're all about instilling a sense of political correctness among among their students it doesn't matter uh, that they they don't know anything about uh, plato or dante or shakespeare uh, what matters is that they have the right political um uh, uh you know slogans that they um that they parrot back to their uh, back to their teachers and it's um what, what we have seen and and yale is a very good example of it is a uh, a, a paradoxical situation where instead of trying to um, be institutions that help young people grow up, they actually 
um, uh, are infantilizing institutions. They keep their students in a state of perpetual childhood. That's why all of this talk about safe spaces and trigger warnings and, and so on. It's all in microaggressions. It's, it's not about growing up and standing on your own two feet anymore and becoming an autonomous person. No, it's about, it's, it's about being taken care of and coddled. And uh, getting back to Yale, um, you know, in the earlier segment, um, I, I sort of sketched a bit of the background, and I noted that uh, the president of Yale, Peter Salovey, uh, decided not to rename Calhoun College after this first spate of, of protests, but he tabled it. He said it will be for future consideration. And then uh, last um, summer, he announced two committees. And uh, uh, you should, I hope your, your listeners are sitting down for this one. Two committees. One, it sounds like something out of the French Revolution or, uh, uh, you know, uh, George Orwell or something. The, the Committee to Establish Principles on Renaming. And then the second one was the Committee to Consider Public Works of Art. No, so what is this no, no, you're it's, kidding me. You're not serious. Quite, <laughs> no, quite right. I mean, it's, 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 uh, so what did the Committee on Renaming do? Well, of course, their primary task was to find a rationale to rename Calhoun College. And they, they established a, um, uh, this committee came up with four principles that um, would be employed to see whether or not uh, entities, you know, buildings, programs should be renamed at Yale. And um, uh, then the Committee on Public Art, uh, in some ways, it was even more absurd because some of the stained glass windows at Calhoun College uh, depicted slaves working in fields. Uh, 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 one of the janitors took offense at this and smashed the window. He was fired, but then at uh, the behest of angry students, he was rehired. He's now kind of a, a hero, I'm told, um, at Yale. Uh, but the, the, uh, this committee on uh, public art is going around the campus and scrutinizing uh, uh, public works of art, whether they're stained glass windows or statues or inscriptions, to determine whether they are uh, offensive. And if they are offensive, they'll be removed and sent uh, uh, to a museum, to the presumably the Yale Museum, for, quote, further study. Now, this, of course, is exactly what... Uh, uh, what the Germans did in the late 30s. There were some works of art which they, they described as entartita, meaning decadent. Uh, so they, they, they exhibited it once, and then they packed it away for, quote-unquote, further study. It's really quite extraordinary what's, um, uh, what, what can happen at an institution that is you know, supposedly devoted to the study of the liberal arts and the study of history to, to, um, to, to learn about the way people lived in the past. That's, that's all gone beyond the boards now. What, they, what they're interested in doing at Yale is uh, not uh, sort of conjuring with the past, but effacing it, obliterating it. Of course, they don't say that. In fact, they loudly say that they don't want to do that, but that's exactly what the, the effect of their um, behavior is. So, uh, that brings us up more or less to the present. And um, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, this committee, um, uh, uh, well, actually a couple of months ago, the committee made its recommendation, and then yet another advisory group uh, pondered, the, uh, pondered 
the recommendations made by the committee on, uh, to establish principles on renaming, and lo and behold, they made the, uh, uh, the determination that Calhoun College's name should be changed. And just last week or, a week before, or, a week, or two weeks ago, uh, the university um, uh, announced uh, with great fanfare that, in, indeed, as they were changing the name of Calhoun College to Grace Hopper College, um, Grace Hopper was a, um, uh, an early computer uh, pioneer and a career U.S. Navy officer. So no, no flies on her. But uh, the point is, why should they, why should they rename uh, a, a college? Why, why should they do that? Especially when you look around at the people for whom other colleges are named uh, at Yale, you have Timothy Dwight. Well, he owns slaves. You had uh, Jonathan Edwards. He owns slaves. You had Ezra Stiles. He owns slaves. You had S., uh, Morris College, for named after um, uh, uh, Samuel F. B. Morris, who, the inventor of the telegraph, but also like Calhoun, a uh, an avid apologist for slavery, who believed in, indeed that it that slavery should be extended throughout the entire country because, as he put it, it was a beautiful institution, his word, beautiful. Now, uh, where would it stop? How about the name of Yale University itself? Well, that it's named for Elihu Yale, a, a Boston-born British merchant who, when he was president of Madras in England, in, uh, in India, uh, uh, you know, had slaves flogged, um, uh, executed a boy for stealing a horse, made sure that every ship that left his harbor had the requisite uh, 10 slaves aboard to go to, to, go to, uh, to Europe. And yet the whole university is named for this chap. Why should, uh, if Calhoun must go, why not Elihu Yale? And in fact, um, if, you look at the, uh, if you look at the criteria that that Yale has developed for, for renaming. One of, the, uh, one of the considerations is what kind of, how close an association did the person have with Yale? Well, Calhoun actually was quite closely associated with Yale. He, he graduated from, uh, from Yale College. He was valedictorian of his class. Um, uh, whereas Elihu Yale never set foot in New Haven, as far as I've been able to determine, had no connection with the college at all. In fact, I think that the university would be, if it's going to go down this politically correct route, would, uh, would be far, uh, far, it would be far better for them to leave poor Calhoun out of it and think about renaming the entire university. Then, of course, the question is, whom should they name uh, the university after? Well, I, I have an idea on that score, too. It turns out that the reason that Elihu Yale gave, um, it was about 800 pounds worth of of, uh, of books and other goods to, um, uh, uh, to, it was called Collegiate. The school is called Collegiate. And in, in gratitude, they named the school after Yale. They named it, uh, they named it Yale College. Um, but the person who actually organized uh, uh, the money, not only LSU Yale's money, but uh, several other uh, donations, was a, a Harvard man. And his name was Jeremiah Dummer. D-U-M-M-E-R. <laughs> now we got something, and that's a beautiful way to end things. We're talking to Roger Kimball on the Yale controversies and his Wall Street Journal column, 
yells, and consistent name-dropping. And we'll continue this conversation with Rogers through the months and coming years. This is Our American Stories. What happens at college? Well, it doesn't always stay at college, and that's why we're covering the Ivies and some of the nation's most influential colleges. More after these messages. our american stories and jesse i'm not sure what that music is but it sounds like something off the shaft or superfly soundtrack the visioneers oh the visioneers i love it i love it it sounds like something that our our friend trenton quentin not trenton quentin tarantino it's very california it is very california love it recently we came across an article at the wall street journal about a guy named kevin who had established his own micronation within the state of nevada a micronation is an entity that claims to be an independent nation or state, but is not recognized by world governments or major international organizations. We just had to get to the bottom of this bottom of this story, and there was no one else on the crew who could do a better job than Jesse. I'm just outside of a small town called Dayton, Nevada, just south of Reno, to visit with a man named Kevin Ball. Now, Kevin is what you might call a crazy person. You're about to find out why. You see, a long time ago, our friend Kevin here decided it might be a good idea to declare himself the president of Molossia. What is Molossia, you might ask? Well, let's ask His Excellency ourselves. Molossia is a micronation. Basically, it's a, a tiny self-declared country. Uh, we sort of see it as a, um, expression, a self-expression, uh, creativity, kind of almost like an art project, but not quite. But... Also, we want to have everything in Malasia that a regular country would have. That's why we have our own post office, phone system, and so forth like that. Um, Malasia was originally founded uh, in 1977. Uh, my friend James and I, uh, we saw a movie called The Mouse That Roared uh, with Peter Sellers, and we were really struck by the imagination and creativity and the idea of that, mo- of that movie. So we decided we wanted to have our own country, which was called the Grand Republic of Volstein. And he, at that time, and um, he was king, I was prime minister, but then he moved on, went to a different school, but I stayed with it over the years, and then once we obtained this property here uh, in northern Nevada, it was really natural to raise the flag and declare it to be a property of our sovereign nation, Malasia. Now, the Republic of Malasia claims to be a sovereign, independent nation state, completely surrounded by the United States, and as a result, it's adopted a system of government recognizably similar in structure to that of a sovereign state. I thought we were an autonomous collective. You're fooling yourself. We're living in a dictatorship. A self-perpetuating autocracy in which the working classes... Oh, there get... you go, bringing class into it again. That's what it's all about. If only people would... Please. Can someone move to Malasia or apply for citizenship? Well, actually, no, we do not um, allow other people to move in and become, become citizens of Malasia. It's really kind of a family nation, if you will. Uh, we have a lot of people that would like to move here. Um, surprisingly, actually, from the Middle East... It, we have a lot of inquiries, uh, people who want to come here on a regular basis. I, I'll get about a half a dozen a week of folks that want to move here. I think partially because they would like to you know, come into the U.S. They see this as a way to get here. But Malasia is only open to uh, really our current citizens and our family members. Does the United States government 
care that you've declared yourself a sovereign nation? The U.S. has never really had a problem with Malaysia, at least as far as I know. I'm sure they snoop around our website because they tend to do that. But at any rate, they don't really care what we do because we are, uh, I guess, again, they see us sort of as a, you know, self-expression kind of thing, you know, personal freedom and private property and all that kind of stuff. And that's fine. They leave us alone. Uh, we do pay taxes, but we call it foreign aid. So we give foreign aid to the U.S. to uh, help prop them up. And you've seen their roads, so you see they need all the help they can get. Uh, this guy is absolutely nuts, but I thought he seemed rather harmless. That is until he explained to me that he's been at war with East Germany for some time now. Well, the war with East Germany started back in 1983. Uh, it's really back in the midst of times because I don't honestly remember even starting this war. But at the time, I was the prime minister. It was the Grand Republic of Wolstein at that time. And I was the prime minister. And I was also serving with the U.S. Army in Europe back in the Cold War days. So every now and again, they would roast us up out of our sleep and we'd have to jump in our tanks and go, you know, stand a, po a post because it was, you know, the time when you had to sort of do that. Uh, November of, of 83, uh, when I was still prime minister, I guess I was rusted out of my sleep one too many times. So I decided to declare war on East Germany. And I have a nice little war certificate hanging up on the wall right there. I think that's it. Anyway, um, then I forgot all about it. And then a few years ago, I was reading through my records and I pulled this thing out. And I said, well, that's kind of cute. That's neat. And I happened to do a little research and discovered that East Germany still exists in the form of a tiny island off the coast of Cuba. It's called Ernst Tailman Island. And it was given by Cuba to East Germany back in 1970-something, three, uh -huh. I think. Uh, Fidel Castro gave it to the to the yeah. East Germany. Um, I guess it was sort of a symbolic thing, but essentially it became East German territory. They have a little statue, a statue there on there and so forth, and it was never addressed in the Unification Treaty. So it was sort of like one of those limbo kind of things. Uh, so I guess we're still at war with East Germany, at least that's how we're going with it. Now there's nobody on this island. It's uninhabited, except for marine iguanas. So uh, <laughs> I guess those would be the only existing East Germans out there are marine iguanas. And because we can't go there, because we are still subject, unfortunately, to U.S., you know, restrictions of traveling to Cuba. We can't really, you know, engage in peace with the marine iguanas there. And uh, so we will probably be at war with East Germany forever, for as long as at least the embargo goes on, because we would like to go there someday. It looks like a really pretty place. Making peace with marine iguanas. I mean, look at this guy. He's dressed up like a war general, strutting around his property like Fidel Castro. And in the middle of all this, he somehow managed to land himself a wife. Or as he calls her, the First Lady. I met the First Lady uh, through uh, MySpace, which is really not that popular anymore, but it was a big thing back a few years ago. And uh, we had both been to the same concert, of all things. And I noticed her, she noticed me, kind of thing. And uh, we sort of started communicating that way. And she, I didn't really present myself as kind of like a, it's like, it's like a separate thing. It was my civilian me, my non-president me, and then the president me. I didn't really present myself as the president just as the guy down the road. But, you know, being a smart lady, and she is, uh, she Googled me and figured out <laughs> that I was, in fact, the president of the country, and she liked that. She thought it was a pretty cool idea. So she came into our relationship, and it's been almost five years now, came into our relationship knowing that I was the president of the country and very happy with it. And uh, she's had a good time with it ever since. What are some of, like, your house rules or laws, I guess you would call them? Uh, like all countries, Malasia uh, has its own customs, uh, standards, and there are certain things that can't be brought into the country. Um, they are rather unique because we are a rather unique country. Uh, no walruses are allowed in the country. Uh, there was a cartoon strip called Bloom County a few years ago, and one of the opening splash things always was a, always a little sign next to a meadow under a tree. And one time it said, no walruses. And 
my, my uh, number two son and I thought that was pretty funny. So we put that on there. Uh, no catfish can be brought in the country. It's not like we have a problem with catfish here in Malazi. We're in the desert. But they're banned because we were going to be in FHM Magazine a few years ago. And FHM Magazine bumped us for an article about guys that catch catfish with their hands. They're called noodlers. So that's a couple things uh, that you can't bring. No plastic bags, bad for the environment. No incandescent light bulbs, also bad for the environment. Uh, because we are a unique country, we do have our own measurement system. It's called uh, the Cokins measurement system. And the uh, basic element that would probably apply to most folks is called the Norton. And this is a Norton. It's my hand. It's about seven inches long. And uh, if you ever have to measure something, you go somewhere, you can use your hands to measure. It's kind of convenient. But we really did that to be unique. We have our own time zone. Uh, we are 39 minutes ahead of Pacific time or 21 behind mountain, whichever way you want to be, be driving. And we, again, did that to be a little bit different. And just a few months after we adopted our own time zone, uh, President Chavez of Venezuela adopted his own, the late President Chavez, adopted his own time zone off by about 15 minutes or something like that. Now, where do you think he got the idea? Right here. Absolutely. So we kind of do our own thing. We have a good time with Malasia. Now, do you, do you always dress like that? I dress like a dictator. Well, I mean, because it's kind of a styling thing to do. But anyway, uh, I wanted to be a little bit different. There are a lot of micronations out there, and almost everybody wants to be a king or a prince or a duke or emperor or something along that line. And I wasn't really feeling like I was royalty. It wasn't my thing. So wanting to be different, we deliberately uh, adopted this is a dictatorship. Malasia is a dictatorship. Kind of handy when I'm sort of the head of the household anyway. It's a family country. And so uh, and we have, you know, have a good time. It's a, it's a benign, benevolent dictatorship. It's a family country, he says. Kevin Baugh, one of a kind, the micro-nation of Malasia. Look them up, pay them a visit. Your family might be a little upset and confused, especially if they're expecting Disneyland and you took them here. But that's the way it goes sometimes. This is Our American Stories. Uh, thank you for that, Jesse. He has his own time zone. We should start that here because I'm always 15 minutes late. I should have my own time zone. And and by the way, was he as was he like a, a just a as crazy off oh, the yeah, air? Pretty much. Just he, bad. Exactly what you heard. Bad out there crazy. Yeah. Nice guy though. Hey, that's what we do here in Our American Stories. And if you know somebody who's a dictator of his own nation, if you're a dictator of your own nation, call, share your story. If you want to be. This is Our American Stories. Kevin. The dictator, the head honcho of Malasia, somewhere in northern Nevada. How much is that doggy in the window? The one with the waggly tail. How much is this is Lee Habib, and this is our American stories, and we cover every topic you can imagine love, death, sports, art. I just listened to the Andy Grove piece we'd done. What a life this man led, leading Intel, leading the microprocessor and microchip revolution, and lowering the cost of everything and making it faster and better and ushering in, well, everything we use practically that we love in terms of technology Andy Grove used. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Read that. Watch it. Listen to it. It's terrific. And we're playing this music because it's time for our The Burning Question segment, which we do each week with the Wall Street Journal's Heidi Mitchell. And The Burning Question at the Journal, with those great journalists and those deep thinkers and those incredible writers and these well-trained, seasoned veteran journalists, is, can kissing your dog make you sick? And I got to tell you, I can't wait to hear the answer to this one, Heidi. Thanks for joining us. 
important journalism being done on it, kissing your dog. Let me it tell is. you why it's, it's important, important Heidi. Stuff. I'll tell you a story. I'm away at my family farm. We go, we do this every few weeks, and we get together with cousins and relatives, and we just do nothing. There's not even cell coverage at this farm in the middle of Mississippi. And I'm watching my little pug go out into where the, into the stable where the horses are, and he sleeps with us every night, and he started to eat the horse poop. You smell what I'm cooking, Heidi? So let, let's talk about this, because this is an important question. <laughs> How did you get to this, so, by the way? How did you get to this question this week? Why this question? Well, this was one of those questions that someone in the office asked, because she loves her dog, and she lets her dog kiss her all over the place. But, you know, we live in the city, most of us, and so there's a lot of icky stuff that the, the dogs are picking up. Um, but... I have to say, it's something like 6% of dogs eat bears or other animal species. So it's not so rare what your dog's doing oh, in the barn there. That's good to know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't feel so yeah. alone. Uh, so tell me, what, what's going on inside that dog's mouth? I mean, I've always heard the dog's mouth is the cleanest place in the world. They have special bacteria, and no matter what they eat, all just dandy. Talk about that. Well, the thing is, is that their mouths are special. You know, they've evolved with all this yucky stuff in there, and it doesn't make them sick for the most part, right? I mean, most dogs are pretty healthy, happy, loving animals and part of the family. And what they carry in their saliva is a lot of bugs. They carry a lot of stuff in there. Um, There's some stuff that that isn't going to be harmful to humans. There's some stuff that isn't going to be harmful to them. And then there's the stuff that ain't so great. And those are the things that doctors worry about. Yeah, I can imagine. So you, you talked to someone named Dr. Sykes, the interim director of the mm-hmm. Veterinary Medical Teaching Hospital at UC Davis. And this is where the journalism comes in, because you've got this burning question that may seem silly, but it leads you down some pretty interesting paths. So what do you learn about... Oh, it's amazing, because there's experts in everything, That's right. right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> they devote their whole lives to studying these things. Well, it's good to know that this doesn't make our dogs sick, but the question becomes, does it make us sick? So what does he have to tell us, Dr. Sykes, about your burning question? So it's a she, but she has lots to say about it. So the most crucial things you need to think about are Campylobacter, which is a food poisoning agent, um, Giardia, which can cause diarrhea, you probably heard of Giardia, mm-hmm. and Salmonella, which is, you know, an yep. organism that affects the gut and makes you have to take a couple of days off work or at least not be in public for very long. Um, and all those are just stomach ailments. They're really not, probably not going to kill you. They might cause dehydration and lots of diarrhea and, and pain in the gut. But if your dog is licking you all over your face and getting that saliva in your mouth, you know, you can catch that stuff. But it can get worse than that, which is, uh, I can't even pronounce these words, but Capnocytophagia canimorsis and Pastorella multisoda. And those are, um, they can get into your bloodstream, and they can even cause occasionally meningitis, ah, which can kill you. Yeah, that's not good. And so basically he's right. saying if you're going to kiss the dog or let the dog kiss you, not on the mouth, and leave open wounds alone and don't let the hound hound your wound, basically. So this is something totally disgusting to me because she spent a lot of time speaking to me about not letting your dog lick your open wounds. And... I was shocked that people would even do that. I mean, I guess if it's a little scratch, maybe you're like, oh, that kind of feels good. But, but an open gaping wound just sounds totally disgusting. And <laughs> if you look on the comments on the, on the page that we posted it on, on the journal, a lot of people talk about their dogs licking their open wounds that, you know, it'll 
cure it and help it heal faster. I mean, it's not going to help. It's still, it's an open wound. And then you're filling it with all these bacteria that you're already trying to fight an infection. And then there's all the stuff that's coming in, bacteria and little organisms. Not such a smart idea to have your dog no. lick your open no, wound. No, no, it's that's super yuck. Let me ask you about this because there are other ways for the saliva to get to us. And I did not think about this, but it's not just kissing okay, the so wound or kissing the mouth. It's, exactly. It's that catch ball so that we really play where with. It gets worse, right? Because what do most people do? They play catch with their dogs. So they pick up that juicy tennis ball covered in slobber, oh. and they throw it. The dog catches it, picks it up with its slobbery mouth, brings it back, fetch again. And then, you know, your hands are covered in slobber, and then, you know, you wipe your, people wipe their face something like 60 times an hour, you know, so you're getting it in your eyes and your nose and your ears and your mouth. It's all that slobber is going somewhere into your body oh. so you know you should maybe carry some purell or wash your hands after or just try to be cautious of wiping your face when you're playing with your dog yeah yep. and, and you know one, one thing i wanted to ask you is you write in your piece uh, about well getting infected by your canine i mean ultimately this can happen as you were just describing um in, in the piece what do you do if if you are infected by your canine so it's funny because most people would think, um, well, you call your vet because your dog got you sick, so your dog must be sick, but your vet really can't treat a human. Right. And she said that there's a lot of, it's like 50-50 people think I call the, my doctor, I call my dog's doctor, but you really need to call your doctor. So your doctor's the only one that can prescribe antibiotics or whatever needs to be done to get rid of these bugs in your body that you got from your dog. <laughs> you know, you have a couple of, uh, there some comments, obviously, and the joys of modern journalism doing anything in public is that you're going to hear from folks and one one person george ann mark miller wrote canine blaming is bigotry the authors are people privileged don't need no vet splaining <laughs> ouch so so for the people who think you're hating on the pups what do you got to say for yourself? Um, you got some explaining to well, do. Well, first of all, <clears throat> you got to never read those comments if you write these columns because they're all filled with, I don't know, these people a lot of time on their hands. I know. Um, and they always say mean things. But there are people who are, I'm sure, loving up their dogs and sleeping with their dogs. And, you know, they are part of their family. And I get that. I'm not a dog owner myself, but I get they love their dogs and nobody likes to hear that your dog's carrying germs. But look, my kids are carrying germs too. So I got to wash my hands when they come home too. So exactly. <laughs> it's exactly. Everywhere. It's everywhere, right? Yeah. It's what's, what is really strange though, Heidi, is, you know, my wife watched the dog eat the poop and has watched this before and allows this dog to sleep with us and kiss him. If I went out and ate poop, my wife would not let me kiss her. Why Why the discrimination against the human? This human hating. That's what I want to know, Heidi. Not you know, there is, a, there is the flip side of the coin. Some people do believe, it's called the hygiene hypothesis, that the more exposure you have to yucky, dirty germs, the more your immune, immune system is going to build up. That's and right. then not react when it comes in contact with other foreign objects. So, you know, there's, there's research being done on that right now, but it's not conclusive yet. <clears throat> but she have, she might have something there. She might have if you're something otherwise there. Otherwise healthy. I mean, pretty much what Dr. Sykes worries about is children under five and people over 65. Right. And also people who are already immunocompromised, like a pregnant woman or, um, you know, a drug user or someone who cancer. So if you're healthy, you know, you're occasionally getting licked by your dog, even your dog that's eating the poop in the barn. 
Maybe you're going to be okay. <laughs> That's right. Hey, let me read you another Maybe don't one. Maybe kiss your wife. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> let me read one from Ian Andrews for you. Five dogs occupy my bed. Five dogs kiss me throughout every day, every week of the year. So far, so good. Also, this is my fourth generation of pups. I treat them all the same. They get to kiss me and sleep next to me in bed. They're better than girlfriends or wives as they don't complain about us and any BS. <laughs> So there you go. You really tapped a nerve with this one, didn't you, Heidi? Oh, they hate me. They all hate me. <laughs> they hate you. Hey, Heidi, when you guys are sitting around, do you, it, it, how does this happen? Do you have a consensus? Do you have a group meeting and, and say that's the one? How does, how does the, how does the uh, subject get picked each week? Sometimes it's just like we're sitting around. Sometimes my husband will email me something from work and be like, oh, I need to know is a stand-up desk better. Right, or, right. Um, you know, or I'm driving in the car for six hours and I'm like, my back really hurts. Is there a better way to stretch my back? And they're like, that's a great burning question. Right. Sometimes they're like, you know, it's getting hot. It's getting cold. Should I worry about my wet hair? You know, so it varies. Sometimes we get emails. Anybody can email in burning at WSJ.com. They can mail in their questions and we can have that random question you never thought to ask answered by an expert. Well, Heidi, I appreciate what you're doing. It's just fun to do with this. And I think next week we were, we were discussing this. We're building a pool at our house. And if you remember, there was always that wives tale. You eat a tuna fish sandwich. You got to wait a half hour. You eat a roast beef sandwich. You got to wait 45 minutes before you can swim. And there was always this one person at the pool who knew exactly how long you had to wait before you could actually go in the pool. I think that may be one of our burning questions. Um, not that I want to impose on you, but you know, every once in a while, we think, the, we think these thoughts too. Now, you got us thinking about these things. When it gets a little bit warmer, we'll, we will circle back on that one. Awesome. Well, Heidi, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. And uh, come, back more, come back each week, please. Thanks, Lee. Take care. You, you bet. Enjoy. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. The burning question, can kissing your dog make you sick? And uh, I just keep thinking about my dog in that barn, and that makes me sick just thinking about it. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. More after this.